Five months of fighting in World War I was not enough to dampen the Christmas spirit. On Christmas Eve of 1914, German troops in Belgium began decorating the area around their trenches. They placed candles on their trees and continued the celebration by singing Christmas carols. Most notably, Still a Knock or Silent Night. The Scottish troops in the trenches across from them responded by singing English carols. The two sides continued by shouting Christmas greetings to each other, and before long there was a call for visits across no man's land, and gifts were exchanged. And without any official plan or announcement, the artillery in that region fell silent that night. This unofficial truce spread to other areas of the lines where there are stories of football matches between opposing forces. Writing home, one British soldier said, Just you think that while you were eating your turkey, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I'd been trying to kill a few hours before. It was astounding. I think this story strikes a powerful and appealing note, does it not? Thousands of the fighting men of enemy nations meeting and shaking hands between their trenches. There's something about Christmas that encourages peace. It stirs within us the desire for things to be right between people. Which is why this scene from World War I will be played out to one degree or another all across our country in homes and in get-togethers over the coming weeks. Family members at war with each other choosing to set aside their differences and be at peace. At least for a little while. But temporary expressions of peace inspired by Christmas don't really fool anyone, do they? Because we know we know that our world is not peaceful. And neither is our lives, as all of us have relational conflicts to one degree or another. So whether you know someone in your fam- whether, you- whether with someone in your family or with a neighbor, friend, or coworker, we all know the difficult and unpleasant experience of being at odds with someone. Every one of us can point to relationships we have that need to be reconciled. But of all the broken relationships in the world, none of them is more serious than our relationship with God. Nowhere is there a greater need for reconciliation and peace. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The Colossian church that Paul was addressing was in danger of being wrongly influenced by false teachers. And Paul's corrective, whatever the specific false teaching was, his corrective to that was to extol the person and extol the work of Jesus Christ. So in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, Paul lifts up Jesus as the sovereign creator of the universe, the head of his body, the church, one who is worthy of preeminence in everything. 
Picking up at verse 19, he writes, In him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This doesn't mean here that everyone will be reconciled and experience peace with God, but rather God will remove the curse on creation that was imposed on man because of the fall. Paul proceeds then in verse 21 to apply this reconciliation to the Colossians. He he writes, And you, Colossians, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. A a minister, or it could be translated a servant of the gospel, just like everybody who trusts in it. So this good news that Paul's talking about here is unbounded. It's global in scope. And therefore, he says, it's proclaimed in all creation. So this morning, we're going to look at these three verses, 21 through 23. And there's four crucial truths in them that we'll consider. Four crucial truths we'll consider. Our past condition, our present condition, our future destiny, and our present duty. So we'll look at those in order as they appear. First, we see our past condition. Verse 21, you who were once, you were once, he's looking back, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We see first, our past condition is that of alienation from God. This implies separation, isolation, loneliness. There's a deep sense of not belonging. And this state of alienation is settled It's continuous. We were persistently out of harmony with God. Paul says as well that we were hostile towards God. We were against God in an active sense, in the the grammar that comes out. This This is an active hostility. Viewed God as our enemy. Paul says this hostility is in the mind and and if you read a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the, this word here, mind, was used to translate the Hebrew word heart. So, so the point is that this, this hostility inflect, infects the totality of our nature. We could say that if hostility was blue, we'd be blue all over. So from birth, we're hostile toward God with our whole being. Deep down, we hate God's absolute power and authority. And because of this hostility, we do evil deeds. Our heart condition of hatred for God shows itself through what we do. We remember here, we recognize that godlessness naturally leads to evil actions. So, whether it be on one hand, sort of an extreme example, 
whether it be a vengeful act of murder in arson by someone whose wife was cheating on him, or the very normal and routine temper tantrum thrown by a cute and innocent baby who does not want to sit still in his high chair and eat his banana? Whatever it is, all sin, all sin is refusing to submit to God. And our actions reveal our heart. I wonder this morning, how does this description of our past condition strike you? It's not certainly common for people to run around saying that they hate God. Say there's some who do, but it's not particularly common. And in most people's self-analysis, it's not normal for them to conclude that they're hostile to God in their minds, which causes them then to sin and do evil actions. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you even think that, okay, the pagan Colossians may have been like that. I've never been hostile towards God. I was raised in a Christian home. I trusted in Christ as a child and was never really alienated from Him. Or perhaps you would say that you became a Christian later in life, but always believed in God and were never really against Him. Well, if you think that this description of your past condition is too harsh then you haven't yet come to rightly know your heart in the sight of God. So have you ever seen yourself like this? As one who is hostile towards God and therefore alienated by Him? This is who we are. This is who we are by nature. And you must come to see yourself in this way. And we recognize as Paul puts these two together, that it's our hostility towards God that causes our alienation from Him. God is completely holy, free from all evil deeds, and He has a perfect and just wrath against all sin. In His holiness, God cannot have fellowship with us in our sin. He cannot have fellowship with us in our sin, and that is really, really, really bad news. But there's good news. And we see it as we consider our present condition in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We were once alienated and hostile, now reconciled to God. Peace has been made with God. The relationship has been restored. We are no longer enemies. We see here that the source of this reconciliation is God. Do you see that? He has reconciled. So so the source here is God. The initiative was with Him, not with us. And isn't that what Christmas is all about? God taking the initiative of sending Jesus to earth as a baby. Because of our alienation and hostility towards God, He had to reach towards us. We did not want to reach towards Him. And in fact, we could not because of our hostility against Him. 
So, so rec- the picture here of reconciliation, we see all through Scripture, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite one-sided. Reconciliation is God's work. It is all His doing. So if you desire to have peace with God and have a relationship with Him, if that desire is in your heart, be encouraged to know that desire comes from God. That, that is His work. That is His doing. He is stepping towards you. He's the one initiating reconciliation. So if that's you, if you have this desire for peace with God, be encouraged in that and pray and ask God to continue the work that He started. So the source of reconciliation is God. Next we see that the means of reconciliation is the death of Jesus Christ. He, you've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus had to die in order for there to be reconciliation with God. There was no other way it could have happened. Why is that? Well, it's because of our previous condition, hostility towards God, and God's holiness, his perfect holiness. We've sinned against God, which separated us from him, and his holiness and perfect justice demanded that something be done. Overlooking our hostility towards God was simply not an option. You see, if God were to tolerate sin, he would not be who he says that he is. Nor would he be a God that we can trust by any measure. If God denied his absolute holiness by winking at sin he would be compromising his justice, which rightly demands that sin must be paid for. So like, imagine, imagine if a man kills your mother, goes to court, and the judge came off the bench, gives the murderer a hug and says, I love you, man. It's okay. Try really, really hard to not do that again. How would you feel? Right? You'd rightly be outraged. You'd be outraged because justice was not served. God is love. But His love never compromises His holiness and His justice. So, so the question then is raised, well, how is God both holy and loving? How can he be both? How can he uphold perfect justice and yet at the same time extend mercy and reconcile sinners? And there's only one way that can happen. Through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sent his eternal son into the world to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life so that he could pay the just penalty that we deserved for our sins. So we must then ask ourselves the question, have you been reconciled to God? Have you? A lot of people would affirm that a relationship with God is important. It's important. But then we've got to ask, what will make that happen? What is it that makes a relationship with God possible? Is it living a moral life? Doing good things? A lot of people believe that. It's it's a very popular answer. 
One may do good and nice things. And we always do good and nice things compared to other people, right? It's not hard to find people who do worse things than us. But the problem is our hostility towards God and our alienation from Him. That's the problem. And you could never do enough good deeds to fix that problem. Perhaps you think you can have a relationship with God through finding the truth within yourself or following the latest spiritual guru. The belief that all roads lead to God, just kind of find the one that works for you and you're good. We know that's popular, right? We hear it all the time, see it all the time. A couple of weeks ago, there was an article in the Star Tribune series. Perhaps you've seen the series the Star Tribune's doing called The Unchurching of America. Lots of different articles. Um, it's been interesting to see what they have to say about that. But, but in one of these articles a couple of weeks ago, there was a former Catholic who was quoted as saying, I just can't imagine that only one religion has access to the pearly gates. Well, contrary to what so many people believe, all paths do not lead to God. There's only one that will get you there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone was without sin. He alone was the only perfect sacrifice to die in our place. And He alone was raised from the dead as confirmation that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient and God's wrath was fully satisfied. There's only one way to reconciliation and peace with God. And it's possible, and it can be yours, if you would repent of your sin, that is, turn from it, and trust in Christ's death in your place. If you have any questions about how you can have peace with God through Christ's death, how that is the only way, just would encourage you to talk with somebody before you leave. Ask for help. Be happy to even set up a meeting in days down the road. But this is a question that is so important, and if you would like to talk more about it, we'd be delighted to do that. So we see here our past condition, alienation from God, our present condition, reconciliation with God. Next we see our future destiny. Our future destiny in verse 22 at the end. We've been reconciled by his death. Why? There's a purpose here. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So because of the death of Christ for us, Paul says that we will be presented to God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Think about these words in comparison to our past condition. It's shocking. Holy, blameless, for one who was hostile and hated God, Seems almost too good to be true. But it is. 
It is true. And it's only possible because of the cross. Christ took our sins on the cross and He gave us His righteousness. That's the only way this is possible. And we see here the purpose for our reconciliation. The purpose is God presenting the one reconciled to Christ, holy, spotless, and without blame. What a powerful... We have to recognize in this how powerful this act of reconciliation is. To transform an enemy of God into a blameless offering. It's a powerful work God does in reconciliation. And and as we look to the future, and we see the, the purpose of our reconciliation, it's a good reminder that one day we will all stand before God. And we'll be presented to Christ either in our sins as one who is hostile to Him or we'll be presented to Christ as holy, one who's been reconciled to God. We ought to think about that day. And we ought to consider which one is true of us. Will I be presented to God as an enemy or as a pure, holy, spotless offering. Eternity separated from God in unspeakable suffering for those who are still enemies, or eternity in His presence with unspeakable delight for those who've been reconciled. Those are the two options. It's important as well for us to consider as Christians that the purpose for our reconciliation with God is holiness. You see that? So so we're seeing the goal, where this is headed. Why was it God reconciled us? And the purpose for that is holiness. And, And thinking of that and recognizing that helps us, it helps us make sense of the thinking that we probably hear from time to time. Perhaps you even thought it yourself. The thinking that says, I'm reconciled to God. I got my ticket to heaven. So how I live and what I do in this life really isn't that big of a deal. It doesn't matter too much. Do you see how that thinking goes against the very purpose for which we were reconciled? The end goal of our reconciliation is to be presented to God as holy. Which is why Hebrews 12.14 states that without holiness in this life, no one will see the Lord in the next life. Our future destiny of holiness before God must affect how we spend our time, how we spend our money. It must affect our entertainment choices, who we choose as friend. In fact, every aspect of our lives today must be affected by the goal, the purpose of our reconciliation, which is holiness and purity before God. Our past condition, our present condition of reconciliation, our future destiny presented blameless before God. And finally we see our present duty. Our present duty to continue in the faith Verse 23, so so this presentation before the Lord is contingent upon something. There's a a 
um, conditional here. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul says here we must persist in this faith, and the faith we must persist in is the apostolic gospel. The hope we must maintain is sourced in that gospel, which is the good news of reconciliation which we've been considering here this morning. The idea here is of active persistence. Not not just a passive continuance, but the idea is an active persistence. Positively, we're to remain stable and steadfast in this faith. And negatively, we're not to be constantly shifting from the hope sourced in the gospel. How does this verse strike you? What do you make of this verse? How, how does it fit in your theology? What, what place does this verse have in your Christian life? I think it can be easy to just essentially ignore challenging verses like this. But we can't do that. God put this verse and others like it in his word for a reason. And we must strive to understand it as best we can. What Paul says here is not isolated. So, so there are lots of verses in Scripture which, which are saying this same thing. I'll share some examples with you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. This sounds really close to 22 and 23 of Colossians. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Mark 13, 13. But the one who endures to the end, continues steadfast, will be saved. Hebrews 3, 6. We are of God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then Hebrews 3, 14. We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These conditional statements, these warnings are a crucial theme in Scripture that we must not ignore. Now there's not time to fully explain all that Paul means here. And even if there was enough time, I couldn't do it. But we'll briefly consider three questions that I think at least scratch the surface. Hopefully we can gain a little bit of progress at least in understanding um, what this is saying. And the first question we should consider is, is this teaching a work salvation? Is this teaching a work salvation? Is it teaching that our holding on to faith is what allows us or causes us to be saved? Some think that, and it could seem that that would be the case. We look to Scripture and say, no, that's not what it teaches. And Romans, we've been in Romans for the last several months. And if you can remember back to chapters 3 through 5, 4 through 6, right in there, Paul's making this very argument. And he says in chapter 4 that Abraham's faith, his justification was not based on his efforts. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And he says in chapter 5 and verse 4, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So to the one who does not work, his faith is credited as righteousness. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, You're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It's God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. And, and the whole of Scripture teaches we're justified and accepted by God apart from anything that we can do. So no. Verse 23 cannot mean that reconciliation must be earned by the work of persisting in our faith. Okay, second question then. Does this mean that it's possible to become unreconciled? Or kind of said another way, is it possible for one who is reconciled to not persist in the faith And we turn again to Scripture to answer this question. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And after Paul states in Romans 8, 29-30, if you remember, there's an unbreakable chain. And Paul states that those whom God foreknew those God chose for salvation. He chooses them. He justifies them. And it says He glorifies them. So after stating this connection, this unbreakable chain, Paul writes in verses 38 and 39 that I'm persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So not even my failure to hold on is strong enough to separate me from Christ. And then the benediction of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Scripture's clear. We are kept by the power of God. As we so often sing, He will Hold us fast. So if this is not salvation by works, and if we cannot lose our salvation, those who are reconciled will persevere to the end. Why this verse? What is the point of verse 23? What is Paul saying here? Why does he insert this condition? I'll just offer three brief answers that are by no means exhaustive, but I hope are helpful in some way as we strive to understand the purpose of these conditions in Scripture. And the first is that perseverance is a test of reality. 
Perseverance is the test of reality. If it's true that we will persevere to the end, it's equally true that we must persevere to the end. So if a runner is guaranteed to finish the race, guess what? He still has to finish the race. One who is guaranteed to not let go of the rope, he still has to hold on to the rope. So perseverance is just a test of reality. A second insight here is that failure to persevere is something conceivable or imaginable, not something likely to happen. We have no reason in Scripture to to think that it's likely to happen. Paul had full confidence that the Colossians would persevere. And so the truthfulness of the condition that they must persevere does not depend on whether or not their failure to persevere may come to pass. The point here is to motivate them to hold on to the faith, not to suggest that it's likely they would not. Third, the condition is a means to accomplish the desired end and to keep us from falling into a state of false security. So God's promise, we read it here, His promise to present us blameless and holy before Him on one hand, and His warning that we must continue in the faith in order that, for that to happen on the other hand, those two things are not at odds. And they're not at odds because God secures His promise to present us blameless by the use of means, which here is the condition that we must continue in the faith and maintain our hope in the gospel. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon illustrates this in a way that at least is really helpful to me. He says there's a deep precipice, which is the best way to keep any... What's the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces? In some old castle, there's a deep cellar where there's a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you'll never come back alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you'll be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God to a holy fear and caution. So this present duty of holding on to the hope of the gospel is real. And it's serious. And so we must always be examining the present condition of our faith. See, I think one of the most dangerous things we can do as Christians is to look to a decision in the past as our assurance of salvation. We can so easily look back to some point in time when we prayed a prayer and hold on to that, to hold on to that prayer as our hope. 
Now there is for all true Christians a specific point in time when God regenerates the heart and grants the gift of repentance and faith. In just a couple minutes, we're going we're to get to hear about that from April and Anna and Kate. But we must never place our faith in a past experience instead of in what God has done for us in Christ. Our salvation does not rest in a prayer we prayed or a decision we made, but in Christ's finished work on the cross and in God's ability to preserve us. So we need the gospel now every single bit as much as we did then. In our past state of alienation from God, we needed the message of reconciliation through Christ. We needed the gospel. But since reconciliation demands that we persist in this gospel and hold on to its hope, we continue to need the gospel each and every day of our lives. As one commentator says so well, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. We can't ever get past it. We can never exhaust it. We need the gospel today just as much as ever. And if you desire to learn more about how specifically the gospel directly relates to our lives as Christians, I would recommend two books. One, The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges. Two, The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. Those would be both great additions to your Christmas list. So if you need ideas, perhaps those are a couple Christmas is on us. And yet again, the season is reminding our world that real and lasting peace is something we desire. And it's something we ought to pursue. The greatest need for peace is between us and God. For we are by nature hostile toward Him, completely opposed to His law and His will. And the best news in the world is that our alienation from God has ended and we are reconciled with the judge of the universe. Because of his reconciliation to the death of Christ, God is no longer against us, but he's for us. And one day we will stand before him pure, holy, and blameless. This amazing work of reconciliation demands that we continue to believe and hold on to the hope that's offered in the gospel. By God's grace, may you come to experience reconciliation with God. And by God's grace, may we all continue in the faith with stability and steadfastness, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for your word and what you reveal to us here. Thank you for helping us to see that we are not good by nature, that we're hostile towards you. Thank you for helping us to see our true condition before you. And Father, for anyone here that is yet to see themselves as your enemy, show them that, I pray. Open their eyes to that. Father, we praise you for your mercy and grace, which took action, which moved towards us, which offered up your Son 
as a sacrifice so that our relationship could be made right. Thank you, Father, for reconciling us to yourself through Christ. And Father, we look forward to the day when we will be presented to Christ, holy and blameless. There's nothing in us that made that happen. You have cleansed us through forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for that. And Father, may it affect the way we live. Help us to live now in light of the future. God, give us lives of purity and distinction which see the utter incompatibility with living in sin yet claiming to be reconciled to you. Oh, Father, may the gospel affect our lives each day in all areas for your glory. Thank you now for the chance to hear how you have reconciled these three ladies. May you continue to work in our hearts and may you continue to allow the gospel that we're going to hear as well as observe through baptism to affect us, to change us, to work out your grace through us. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.